With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I'm here with Ed Williams. If you don't know him, founder of Blogger, Twitter, Medium. And is this true? You're actually founder of the word, the word Blogger? I mean, people had homepages, but I don't know anyone who used the word blog or blogger before you. I think the official credit of the word blog is to Peter Merholtz, who was one of the early blogs I read. And he said it kind of as a joke, because everyone called them weblogs. Right. And uh, he said, instead of weblogs, we should call them we blog. And then I... That sounds really stupid, actually. Yeah, exactly. Blog was a surprisingly controversial term. I didn't, but what I thought, so blogger, the product, I, uh, I just came up with the name, like no one was using the word blog really. And I, so blogger.com, I registered as a name of a product, which at, at the, since everyone called them weblogs, actually had more brandability than, than it sounds like now. It's just yeah, because weblogs.com was, uh, I think, Jason Calcanis at the time. Oh, but yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I registered blogger.com. So it may, but it, I used it as a product name, not as like a, you know, person term. So, so I want to get to your current project, Medium, which I write on and which I'm fascinated by for a variety of reasons, which I can tell you and share with you. But I want to do a little bit of background because there's so many aspects of your story that are really fascinating. Uh, and I want to go all the way back. All right. Um, how much time we got? <laughs> well, how much time do you have, actually? I'll, 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 I, then I, I can, probably have to leave around 3. I have a 3.15 so. Okay, no problem. Yeah. So, so uh, you dropped out of college after about a year and a half because yep. you wanted to get involved in, like, tech startups. And then instead of doing what everybody else in the world would do at that point, which is move to Silicon Valley or maybe even New York City, you moved to Key West, Florida. <laughs> like, what was the tech startup world? Was it like Silicon Key West or something? Uh, oh gosh, really, really digging up the the. That's the part I don't talk about. Um, so we, it wasn't really tech startup. I was I was just trying to figure out any way to to make my own way in the world, and I didn't have the patience for school. So I ended up going to Florida and studying marketing. Really, and it was more direct marketing at the time. This was pre-internet. This is 1992. Okay, and so um, yeah, I didn't last long in Florida. I didn't really care for that, and I and went from there to Texas, uh, and then and I was doing copywriting for a living. 
And then I finally started my own tech company back in Nebraska in 93. And that was Pyra Labs or? This is, it was pre-Pyra. It was, um, it was a company I called uh, Plexus, which was, uh, uh, I looked up in the dictionary and means network or something. And we ended up doing just mostly internet hosting and, and web design. We, so that's where I learned HTML and they eventually coding and stuff. And we were kind of just selling, uh, you know, local businesses on, on websites. By the way, I interrupt a lot. And my first company, which started around then, was a web services. Web I always called it web services company because, right. like, say web design was right. like a little bit lower right. stigma. Yeah, that sounds better. I should have yeah. used that. I was that. a web services developer. Yeah, nice. So, but then that was a sellable type of company back yeah. then. Well, at the time, I thought of ourselves as an internet company. That's as specific as we had because we wanted to create all these, you know, basically every, everyone had the same ideas back then, just like they do now. But, but we, we wanted to develop products and software. We kind of reluctantly became a services company because of lack of money and a lack of skills. So we, we ended up, and that's why I ended up folding it also. Is this, I hated doing the selling. I hated working on other people's. Um, Clients problems. are really annoying, right? Clients are annoying, yeah. <laughs> Most, a lot of client service businesses find that eventually. But let me ask you, and I'm going to skip around because I'm just curious. I, was Blogger at any point a services company in the sense that brands that didn't quite know how to get to communicate on the internet, you must have been holding their hands to, to get them there? We actually never did. We probably should have. We probably could have both made money and grown more quickly had we done that, but Blogger never did that. We, I think the closest we came to a services company was when we ran out of money in late 2000, we had had a bunch of requests for an inter, inside the firewall blogger. And so we explored that. We created something we called Enterprise Blogger and we just skinned it differently and we put it on a box. And the one client we had, we didn't charge them because we were testing it out was Cisco because um, my co-founder Meg had a friend at Cisco and said, yeah, we want to try a blogger in, inside Cisco. So we put it on a box, we drove down to San Jose, and we, we set the box up inside Cisco, inside their firewall. We never saw what happened and we never charged them any money. But um, Great business strategy. It. Exactly. Although, yeah. right. So here I am, the, the non-billionaire uh, telling right. you about business strategy. Right. But well, what, what we did is we used that when we went and tried and raise money and we said, well, yeah, we're working on this enterprise blogger thing. We have Cisco using it. We just dropped that, which was true, but um, it didn't get us any money. You know, there was one point at Blogger where you were out of money, your staff had walked out, and I know you've written about this, but I kind of want to just go over this here. What, this probably was a low moment for you, I'm assuming. <laughs> what, what you, you kept going for over a year by yourself, after yeah. everyone, like you were kind of begging your the, the users for, for money to support Red. the servers. Totally. Like what kind of internally kept you from being depressed? Uh, I was probably depressed, but the hardest part was getting to that point where I had to lay off the staff. And uh, the next day was, is I was sad, especially because my company and all the, the employees were also my friends and all, all of our friends and, you know, worked with them and a lot of people weren't very happy. So I was at that point super isolated, but the nice thing was my burn went way down 
<laughs> right. Zero. Yeah. Well, your food. Well, I had to, yeah, exactly. I had to, I had to pay rent for myself and, the, and my office. I got rid of my office and servers and, um, which were way more expensive per, uh, we had a half a rack at, at Exodus that I paid like $5,000 a month for. And I was way behind them in the payments. So they were, but they went bankrupt anyway. Well, yeah, the I lawyers had to get yeah, the payments. Yes. So, um, they were letting, they were still giving me bandwidth. They wouldn't let me take any of my servers out, but I was like, okay, that's fine. If I can, um, still let them run anyway. So I, I just, I just kept going because I, like the options weren't any better. And, you know, I didn't want to declare failure. I still had users. I yeah, still, millions of users. Yeah. Probably not even millions. And tell you the truth, when I sold it to Google, I think we had a million registered users and, that's registered when we sold it. But back then that was sounded like a much bigger number than it, than it does today. Sure. And so, so, so you're there kind of, I'm just going to imagine you're in the worst possible state. Like yeah. you're in your little studio, yeah. there's like pizza boxes all over the floor and yep. chilled cola or whatever. <laughs> and you're programming and servers are not shutting down every day, thankfully. And then you get this phone call and I'm picturing like a ring, like a stand, like an old phone and it's Google. <laughs> And you pick up the phone, and, and they're like, what is it? Was it like, hey, this is Sergey. Can you come over? <laughs> what happened? Uh, I like your version of it. For when it, if it gets rewritten as a movie, it probably go. All right, I'll write the screenplay. Yeah. Uh, so what had happened by that time, this was in late 2002 that they called. I'd build it up a little bit. We, I had a small team of about five people. We had... Um, and we were making a little bit of money. We were we were ramen profitable in for um, I like that term with with just subscription services. And so we never we hadn't raised any more money it, um, after that. But but we had enough users and we started launching things that they would pay for. One was called Blogger Pro, which was I think thirty five dollars a year for some more features. And one was you could remove the ads from your if your blog was on Blogspot. The ads didn't make us any money because they were remnant, you know, network ads that basically made no money at all. But we would charge twelve dollars to remove them. That's excellent, actually, business model in the sense that you could make no money on the ads, but just charge extortion to remove the ads. Exactly. Exactly. We didn't call it extortion. I know. So I, of course, you wouldn't call it that. Um, but and no offense by that. No, that's fine. Um, we probably could charge a lot more, actually, but. Anyway, we, that was paying the bills and actually allowing me to pay, pay a few people to work on it. So when Google called, we were, it felt like we were on the, the uprise again. And at the time I had been talking to Joey, Joey Ito and his group about a new round of funding. And I had a term sheet on the table from them and was about to do that. And that's when Google called. And um, what happens is through Tim O'Reilly, who was our investor, he said, yeah, I was talking to the Google guys and uh, suggested that they talk to you. And they said, yeah, we should talk to them about partnering. I didn't know that partnering, if you're a tiny company and you're talking to a much bigger company, is a euphemism for interested in buying you. I didn't know that either. <laughs> and then, so we were thinking, oh, well, how could we partner with Google? That's interesting. They're a search company. I guess we could maybe make searching blogs easier and stuff. And we were, so we, we drove down to Google and said, so we were thinking, you know, we got some ideas for partnering and David Drummond, the, the general counsel then said, yeah, well, 
doesn't really make sense for us to partner with you guys, but maybe you could just bring Blogger here. And I got the drift of what he was saying. I was like, oh. Okay, so that moment. That moment. You were, again, down and out. Okay, five employees, round yeah. and profitable. Yeah. My, my new favorite term. <laughs> and now you realize suddenly my life can change. Yeah. Is that like yeah. a, a better moment than the Twitter IPO? <laughs> No, it was it was a confusing moment, but not that money is so important. No. I, I'm more kind of saying this is something I worked really hard on, and I just killed myself for the past year by myself. Yeah, and now everything's going to change. Maybe. Yeah, kind of. I mean, money money is important. And then I worked my whole life basically broke and usually in debt and worked my ass off to make some money and to achieve the kind of freedom that I could buy. And so the idea that I would sell my company was, it was a profound idea, but I didn't even, it wasn't immediately obvious I wanted to do it at all. It took me a number of weeks. Of course, we had to negotiate and figure out what it meant. And, um, but because I had this alternative path to actually raise money and build something on my own. And I wasn't going to get a bunch of money from Google. This is pre IPO Google, which obviously is a good thing ultimately, and, but and it was an exactly. And so I was, it would be, I could trade my independent future for, um, having less flexibility and having a piece of paper that may turn into money. Um, you know, it sounds silly now, but we didn't know what Google was going to be. It was a, you know, it was impressive, but that it would be what it is and even what that money would turn into was very speculative at the time. So, so you start at Google and, and I, I promise we're going to get to media, but I'm just fascinated by all these things and I'll, I'll keep track of the time because I know, I know it's limited, but so you started at, at, at Google, you're an employee and like you said, you're, suddenly your resources got limited in terms of your own flexibility. Uh, were you able to handle that? Like you're at the Global Plex now, pulling into your parking yeah. space. There's a thousand people all around yeah. you. Yeah. People are skateboarding that you don't know. Right. <laughs> that is actually what it was like. Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't handle it very well, to tell you the truth. I didn't. It seems like you've never handled that well in some yeah. sense. Yeah. Like you're not. Um, I don't want to say you're not plays well. You're not a not plays well with others, <laughs> but you just don't do that. I don't. Yeah, I'm not great at that. I wish I was better. I wish I had been better at Google because I was so fiercely dedicated to making my thing successful. I, I was proud to be a Google. It was, you know, it was, I was proud to be a Googler. It was the first time I had ever been part of something else that I actually felt I'm part of this thing and I'm glad I'm part of this thing. And, but partially because I'd never worked in a company or had any formal training or schooling or anything or just, I just didn't even know how you do that so I was fiercely dedicated to making my thing successful in and I felt like as in a foreign land I didn't know the rules I didn't know the language to use to succeed in that environment so it just kind of thrashed a little bit what's an example of that like what's an example of something that happened where you misinterpreted like a social cue, you know, because now you're in a corporate environment that you yeah. hadn't been in before. Although you had worked at big companies before I that. worked it very briefly as a contractor at Intel and HP, but, but I didn't really know how to manage. And this was also now you were working and you were leading something you still deeply cared about. Yeah. yeah so I probably missed most of the things I was doing wrong, but I know one time, um, 
early on, I had this meeting with um, the vice presidents of product and engineering, whom I, I reported to both of them because they didn't really know what to do with me, which meant neither of them ever talked to me. And so um, they had much bigger things to worry about. I presented to them and Larry and Sergey, and it was about like our plans or whatever, our roadmap. I don't remember the meeting that well, but actually several months later, maybe a year later, we, uh, Jason and Shellen, who worked with me and who was in that meeting, found a folder in this when Google had what became Gmail internally, but when we got there, most things still ran on Outlook and Exchange. And so there's this weird shared folders thing. He found a folder called Blogger in the shared folders, and in that was one message, and it was from uh, Larry or Sergey to Jonathan Rosenberg and saying, what the hell was that in regard to our meeting? And um, I'm paraphrasing, but it was some conversation between them about how clearly we didn't know <laughs> what we were doing. And I was devastated at the time reading it, but it was probably not unique. Well, it's funny because clearly blogs took off. Blogs took off. Well, the, the beauty is what they, what they did right and what we did right enough was we didn't kill it. And we focused on making the product better, and there was, you know, we had product market fit. So um, they just said, "Do your thing," and uh, so we did our thing. It made it better and better. And, and you had the resources to do that, which must have been yeah. nice. Yeah, not as much as we thought. I thought, well, I show up at this place with hundreds of engineers. I'm going to get some because I desperately need engineers. And then it was actually harder to get engineers there because any engineer came in the door, they had to come through the same hiring process. They had to meet Google standards and then they could be assigned to work on things like search and ads, which were these huge businesses that are blowing up or they could work on our little thing that didn't really matter. So it was a clear dilemma. It was, so it was hard. There was a thousand other projects vying for resources. Uh, and so because I didn't play that game particularly well, I did eventually get resources, but not, not a lot. And it was slow. So, so at some point you decided, okay, I've done my thing here. Um, it looks like I'm hit, starting to hit a wall or at least the second derivative of my personal happiness here is going down. Right. And so now you have an idea, which actually might work now right. just because of the rise of podcasting. But you started essentially a podcasting services, right. a podcasting product company. Like right. you were sort of podcast in a box, right. sort of, with Odeo. And... Um, I don't know what the exact product was, to be honest. I guess it's how people set up a podcast. Now we're sitting here with just my right. my laptop as my podcast in the box. But uh, what got it? See, there there is a theme between Blogger, even Odeo, Twitter, and Medium, which is that you were all about how can we use the internet to communicate to a wider audience. And as you even put it. You grew up in a small town. Yeah. You wanted to make friends, yeah. and so I myself have made tons of friends yeah. through your products. Yeah. So, you know, was, did you see podcasting as kind of a next step after blogging? I saw it having very similar potential and and properties, and I kind of stumbled into that because of uh, my friend Noah Glass, who was working on that company. I didn't really leave Google to do it. I just wasn't doing anything, and. Um, he had his charms. And what I saw was it's, it's all about the democratization of media. And so in a similar way, 
to blogging, I thought, well, lots of people should be able to, to have opinions and voices and thoughts and share them in this form, which has not yet been impacted by, by the internet as much as pretty much everything else. And um, tons of people listen to the radio all day long, or at least when they're commuting, and there's no, it's, it's old fashioned and it's centrally controlled, and we should open that up in the same way. So it's almost like it's almost like the same sort of let's get rid of the gatekeepers. Yeah. So instead of saying, okay, well, I have to be hired by the New York Times in order to write something that more than a thousand people will set, see, you started blogger. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing with podcasting. Instead of being a radio DJ, I can now create a, a format where everybody can speak and everybody can listen. Yeah. But but then you were almost 10 years ahead of your time. I mean, we'll see. Yeah. We still, it's still kind of an open question what kind of business model a podcast has. Right. But, but then you, you got into Twitter and that's been well documented. But right. the question I'm curious about is you did an unusual thing, which I'm curious if you could describe. How did you handle your investors who had invested in Rodeo, but now you decided you were going to focus on this new, almost obscure thing with just 10,000 users called Twitter? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, that was tricky because what we started Twitter as a side project, we called it Odeo, uh, but, um, it wasn't working really. Um, and we had a bunch of money in the bank and I just, I wanted to get out of the situation, not because I thought Twitter's going to take off. I thought Twitter was interesting. Um, and so, uh, so what I proposed um, to the board was that we, first of all, try to sell the company because that was the right thing to do for the investors. Um, and so we attempted to sell the company and we failed. And then... Um, Who did you try to sell to? Uh, we talked to... Uh, we went to Santa Monica and talked to MySpace. We tried to talk to Audible, certain audio stuff. We talked to um, Yahoo... I think the only place we even had meetings or got meetings were MySpace and um, Yahoo. Oh, and then um, Rhapsody. Um, or Real. Uh, no, Real Networks. Real Networks, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, there just wasn't a lot of interest. And um, so we got to a board meeting where the board was going to vote to shut it down, give them money back. And so Twitter ex had existed for a few months. It had, and we presented that at the board and we showed the data and, um, you know, and, you know, we, we actually floated, should we just pivot to this? And I got a very clear message from the board that, you know, there's no, there's no evidence that we have anything there. And if, if we're not gonna, um, if we don't think Odeo is going to work, then we should just shut it down and give the money back. And so at that board meeting where that was going to be the vote, I said, how about I just buy the company? Personally, um, fortunately, Google had gone public at the time. It was still, it was a huge investment for me personally to buy the assets. And I wanted to, I wanted to make the investors whole. I didn't want them to lose money. So I paid a lot more than I needed to because if they were going to get back 60% of their money. I got them back 100% of their money. And then that enabled me to just own it and do, do what I wanted with it. Um, and did any investor now come back later and say, oh my God, I made the mistake of my life. Like, have you heard from investors that, and I'm sure they're all good natured about it because yeah. everybody was a big boy, but have you heard about from people who like really regret now? I think there was some, 
misunderstanding about what happened because there was there was a couple investors who ended up being investors in Twitter who were investors in Odeo because they had at Charles River Ventures who was always really cool about it and George Zachary was the partner there. Um, they were the biggest investor in, in Odeo. They ended up investing in Twitter later um, and there were then I had about a dozen angels in Odeo and two of them I believe ended up investing in Twitter and then some people some of the others got the impression that um, that they just converted their investment but there was no such conversion because I bought Odeo investors out completely put all the assets into a separate company that I funded for six months and then we formed Twitter Inc and um, raised a new round and that wasn't the plan when I bought the assets we had no idea that that Twitter was going to take off or that we were going to do it separately. Why did you do that then other than to make all the investors whole, which is obviously a very honorable thing, but if you hadn't yet seen, I mean, you saw a glimpse of something good in Twitter. You must have seen I something. Thought it was worth, I thought it was worth playing with more. I didn't think it was worth having you know millions of dollars of investment capital and a team of, at the time, with a dozen people working on, not on Twitter, but on Odeo. Uh, so, you know, it's hard. <laughs> we didn't necessarily think we had a hit on our hands. What I wanted to do is I wanted to create this lab, which we called obvious to build a bunch of different stuff. And so, so what I did is put audio and Twitter were our first two products in this, what was going to be this incubator. And I was talking with John Borthwick at the time about what he was doing with Betaworks. That was just forming. We had very similar ideas about what we we're going to build. So I was, I was picturing this, this, um, kind of umbrella company that have a number of products and maybe we'd spin them out if it made sense, or maybe we'd just run them. And that just, that was the notion. So just like, you know, Twitter's one of those that we'll, we're talking about others and, um, you know, but obviously we, we didn't launch a lot of others. So, but, but, but again, did any of the investors now, like much later who didn't go into Twitter, but pulled out their money out yeah. of, you know, the original company, yeah. Did any of them say call you up like six years later and say, "Oh man, that was like the biggest mistake of my life"? Well, it it wasn't really a mistake because they, frankly, they didn't have a choice. Right, they made the right decision too. Yeah, it was the board's choice. Right, you know, and the the board is job is to look out for those shareholders, and the board legitimately thought this is the best thing for shareholders, so we're going to give them money back. So I didn't go to anyone. There are a couple of people who I asked to invest in Twitter, who were investors in Odeo, and said no. There are a couple of people who. Had, were knocking down the door to invest in Twitter who had invested in Odeo and, and I said yes to and those are the people who had been super helpful to me uh, at Odeo like Mike Maples and Ron Conway and most of the others I don't know they made there's a completely understandable um, reaction to say like if, if I was an investor in, in the company where Twitter was born they should be an investor in Twitter but it was neither a mistake on their part or um People have tried to make the case that there's some shenanigans there, but if you really look at the facts and you look at the investor communication and you look at the board and you look at, then I think it quickly breaks down. Like it was, it was a bit of a fluke, and um, you know, and certainly some people who are invested in it probably wish it went the other way. Under you know, as would I. So 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 Twitter obviously did what it did. Yeah, and. Um, you grew up with it, and then when your child was turning into a teenager, you kind of handed it off and started <laughs> doing other things. And Medium 
was the result. And at, at first glance, when I first looked at Medium, it sort of felt to me not quite like, uh, I mean, always it seems like you've been about communication, like opening up the lines of the single individual to, and saying, here's a, a, a place where you can go and spread a message, whether it's Blogger or Twitter or Medium or whatever. Whereas in, on Blogger, it was more about creating my own destination site instead of like a, a home, in, a what used to be called a homepage. Mm -hmm. Medium sort of feels like it's, sort of feels like a publisher where I'm uploading articles to, uh, uh, to a publisher that publishes everybody mm -hmm. and there's this beautiful minimalistic design, mm -hmm. but it has this feeling of like a blogger plus. Like did, mm -hmm. did you sort of feel like going from um, the, the long or medium form of blogger to the short form of Twitter, did you feel like you needed to go back to the medium or long form of, of medium to kind of enhance what you had started? Well, I felt there's a bunch of different things that went into medium. One is that um, it was very clear that while social media and Twitter were very important and filled this gap that we didn't know existed before, it wasn't sufficient for for the stories and ideas that the world needs. There's still a need for more substantive, yes, longer, but different types of um, publishing than, than that affords. And, and A, B is what we've learned is it's not a, like networks are all powerful. And so this is the thing we missed from building blogger. As you said, it was a way to create a website and then update that website. And basically every general purpose publishing tool on the internet at that time, and mostly since has started with the premise that you need a website. Like WordPress, for instance. Exactly. And they were all just different ways to, to create and or maintain a website. There's no reason you need a website. If uh, A lot of people still think they need a website, but if people publish for all kinds of reasons, sometimes just, just to express themselves, sometimes it's to influence the way other people think uh, and, and affect the world, sometimes it's to market and sell stuff. Uh, and for all those things, you don't fundamentally need a website. You, what you want most, more than anything else, is you want audience, you want the right audience, and you want feedback, qualitative and quantitative. A website isn't required for either of those things. What is efficient for both those things is a network. And so um, what we focused on was we want to build the simplest way to publish and to create a network effect so you get the, get the audience, you get the right audience, and you get qualitative and quantitative feedback on what you put up there, put out there in a way that makes the whole greater than some of the parts, both for the consumer and the creator and everyone in between. And so it's, I think it'll be generally accepted over the next few years for those who publish on the internet. The point isn't to have a website. And I think that's incredibly important. I think that's like the most important idea here is that, because uh, people ask me all the time, how do I drive traffic to my website? And the answer is, Ignore your website. Post on Medium. No offense, but post on LinkedIn. Post on Quora. Post wherever you can. Yeah. And if you want, link back to something else that you're interested in. But these are the places where people are. So, like, if you if, if you want to meet, you know, let's say a spouse, you don't go to I don't know the library where nobody's talking to each other. You go to a place where there's a lot yeah. of men or women, yeah. and uh, uh, that's how you build yeah. traffic. Right.
Or if you're going to use the internet to meet your spouse, you don't build a website and talk about yourself. You create a profile on a, on a dating app. It's, it's the same principle. Um, of course, I think you, should, you don't need to publish in all those places, but, but it's Well, fine. it just depends on your personal you know, makeup. If you're looking for a job and you want to attract a certain employer, you might post on LinkedIn. Yeah. If you're answering questions, you might want to post on Quora. Yeah. You know, Medium sure. strikes me as a place where I can, I can feel like my own publisher. I can be a writer on Medium. Yeah. It feels like a writer's platform. Yeah. Exactly. And I think more and more people realize that the, that the website is not the point. And um, whether it's just to, to have good tools or to find audience or to get feedback or to engage in conversations, a website is the least efficient way to do any of those things. And um, so what, what Medium is trying to be is, of course, the default place to publish for lots and lots of people. But I think the shift, whether we exist or not, the shift is going to happen from websites to centralized networks for better or for worse. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the open web and I think it's important, but the fact is the majority of content and attention is going to go to networks that make it efficient for the creator and the consumer. And, you know, there should be one of those that has substantive content besides Facebook. Well, it's interesting. There's a, I read a statistic recently. If I built my own website that sold, let's say shoes, uh, and then I also built the same store within Amazon. Uh, people, and let's say I go with the same people at both sites, people are 30% more likely to buy on the Amazon setup store because that's a trusted destination site. And I think the same thing is happening for community and writing and friendship sure. and everything. For sure. And I think it's, it's the same as, and there's, there's also very practical. If you say you get someone to come to your website, then, um, you know, we have some unique engagement mechanisms on Medium, but say all you want is comments. And that's important to some people, it's not important to others. Then people have to be logged in and they have to, you know, engage in a, on a system where no people they know are. And that's just, it's not going to happen. So similar if you're on Amazon, not only is it trusted, very practical considering it's like they have your credit card already and it's one click versus filling out a form. All these things, this plumbing and infrastructure is critically important and, and people will, will shift over time to realize it's sort of one analogy I use is um, there's a time when everyone thought they had their own land and some people still do and owning land is great and you can do whatever you want on that land. But then majority of people move to cities and cities, you give up some flexibility and freedom and you trade it for convenience. You also trade it for the dynamic vibrancy of being part of a community and bumping into other people and especially people who create culture do so in cities. But it's interesting just to set some um, grounding for that. You grew up on a farm, right? <laughs> so, so of course this was like, you noticed this, yeah. this vibrancy and the fact that, and, and Stephen Johnson writes about this in his yeah. books about ideas, ideas happen in urban exactly. areas where people bump into each yeah. other. And it feels like Medium wasn't just the plumbing and infrastructure for a publishing platform, but also the plumbing and infrastructure for a network. So like you said earlier, I can post something and then what's going to happen to it, depending on my community and my readers and my network, is going to change what I posted. So I'll go back to what I posted and it's changed mm -hmm. because now there are highlights, yep. which doesn't happen on any other publishing platform. Now there are comments and, high, and people noting things inside the article as opposed right. to just comments at the end. Right. 
which I never liked. I always dread getting to the end and then people saying, oh, I hate you or whatever. But now people can actually say it in the middle of the part. <laughs> so, but that was an interesting thing. I thought that was kind of flattening hypertext a little mm -hmm. bit and bringing to life a little bit more kind of the initial impetus of, of, of Tim Berners-Lee coming up with the web, yeah. which is that now people can say things within a yeah. document. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to do more stuff like that because it's, and we're, just to use the city analogy more, is, is that the presence of other people is incredibly important to both give context to stories and to make them relevant to, to your interests. So if on Medium, on Facebook, you can be pointed to an article and then you consume that article and maybe you go back and there's comments. Uh, and But there's no one in there with you. And so what you're talking about as an author is from a reader perspective, it's if you've read something and highlighted something or made a note and I follow you and I come across that on Medium, immediately that's more interesting. It's like seeing a movie together. It's like, let's talk yeah. about that. No, it's great because the other thing is too, when I'm writing an article and I know I'm going on Medium with it, I'm thinking to myself, I want to write so well that people are going to highlight this this yeah. passage. Awesome. So I'm thinking of that in yeah. advance. So you've, it, it's changed my writing style to knowing that I'm posting there. And I want to, and I, and, and I'll think I want this category of people to highlight. It's like I want you know yes. men or women or whatever to highlight this. Interesting. And, and it's interesting, you know. And then sometimes it's hard for me to tell where people are commenting as opposed to where people are just highlighting. Yeah. So that's just something to bring up. Yeah. But we're 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 working on that. The we're about to launch a, a big update to the notes function that, um, especially on mobile, that's going to make that a lot lot better. You can make it almost like like what I would love to do is cut and paste an entire book there. Because I, I sort yes. of think, I don't really care about publishing yeah. books, yeah. but if I could post an entire book there, and then, I mean, even Kindle should do this, I should see conversations within my yes. book. Like, this yeah. is what he was meaning, why did he say this? Yes. You know, it might be interesting. Exactly. A little bit like Genius does, but, yeah. but more focused as an yeah. author. And we, every comic can turn into its own thing is is yeah the cool thing not with the current notes but that's the way we're moving the the comments at the bottom can as you know and create all these trees that are a little hard to follow right now but super interesting things happen where because it's on the same level hierarchically um it, it's a comment can be its own post and therefore people sometimes put a lot more work into them they have lives of their own and they can be contrarian or they can build up the original thing and so a whole, that's where the whole really starts to become some of the parts because you can, on multiple occasions, I've read something on Medium and then found something under it that is, in, in two cases I can think of where someone was kind of attacking another business or an entrepreneur and that person came in and wrote a whole post that was thoughtful in response in a way that they might not have had it just been a comment. I know it's the subject of many articles that were even factually wrong or I disagreed with, I wouldn't bother writing a comment because it's sort of relegating yourself to, to, you know, I agree underneath and you don't really, you don't stand on that level ground with the poster. So you just don't bother. It's like, I'm not going to dignify right. that with a comment, but you can dignify that if you're on equal, equal footing. So, so let me just take a time. So I want to ask a couple of quick blitz questions about sure. a business model. You know, you know, and you mentioned you were in Florida doing direct marketing and Texas doing copywriting. So I could almost imagine exactly the places you were working. <laughs> but uh, as you know, the newsletter industry or the direct marketing information products industry is a huge multi 
maybe trillion dollar industry, or at least multi-billion dollar industry. And there's no newsletter in a box type of product out there. It's, an, it's really hard to set up your own mm-hmm. newsletter. Why not make, uh, I, I wanna have some category of my articles be subscription and have, yeah. you know, yeah. have introduce people to it via copy. That yeah. seems like a good, I would pay you, anybody would pay a huge amount for that. Yeah. No, I think that's a no-brainer. It should be easier to sell content for sure, and it's going to be way easier on a platform where you have a much larger audience and therefore take advantage of the same thing that if you're selling shoes on Amazon, you can take advantage of. And there's no doubt in my mind there's there's, um, different content can monetize in different ways. A lot of it doesn't need to be monetized at all, and that's fine. That's not why people do it. Um, Some of it works great with advertising, and some of it people will pay a premium for, even in this world of infinite content. Sometimes they'll even pay more. It's like, people will pay thousands for the right content. Exactly. And so, so that means they'll pay you know, thousands to be able to create up the infrastructure because they yeah. know they're gonna make you know, yeah. six or seven figures here. Why not yeah. pay five figures here? Yeah, and so I, I think it's likely that, that we explore that for sure. It's a matter of prioritization, but the beauty about doing that as a part of medium and not as a standalone thing is you can imagine like you write all the time, all those, everything you, you write is then an ad for, for the, the paid stuff. Absolutely. Right. And if you do that in a really seamless way on an integrated platform, as opposed to, okay, now follow this link and go fill out a forum on some other website. Uh, it could work really well. Hopefully we'll see soon. So now I also wanted to ask you like, so you have a bunch of programmers here and other people doing things. And when I arrived, you were, you were in a meeting. What's your day like here? Like, yeah. like what were you meeting about while, while I was out there? Like, <laughs> what were you guys talking about with all these medium yeah. notes on the wall? Um, so that happened to be it. That was, that was a recruiting meeting. He doesn't work here. So don't report on who he was. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't see him. Uh, yeah. Um, I was recruiting. I do a fair bit of that. Um, and, but mostly I work with the product team here. We have more of the editorial people here in New York who are working on super interesting projects, um, with, with writers or with VIPs or influencers. And in San Francisco, we have engineers and product and, and design. So I'm either sitting with them trying to figure out what we're working on or giving feedback on what they're creating or, you know, there's general management stuff, um, there's hiring, there's running the company stuff. It's, it varies a lot. My happy place is, is on the creation side. So either by myself trying to, I love writing. I, I like, I don't write as much as I'd like to publicly. Um, I write a lot internally for the company. We have our own version of medium that we use both, both as to beta experiences and features as well as to share our ideas. And it's a great enterprise idea. Also, it, it's, Pretty, it's pretty cool as an enterprise. Um, it works really well, actually. And so I spent a fair amount of time on there. Um, and it's really a free you know, market of ideas within the company. And people are always discussing what's going on or new stuff we might build, things they're worried about. Um, so it's really it's just like talking to people and, and trying to help help them and help, help the right things happen. Have you thought about uh, a little bit of gamification within? I know... I, we, what we didn't talk about was, you know, your your idea of metrics being completely skewed in many mm-hmm. parts of the internet. Like everybody's going for likes yeah. or follows, or you know, how many people yeah. like put a heart on Instagram. Um, and you look for how much time has been read on an article, and that's 
That's incredible. So I just want to mention people should read your article on that you. because that actually is how people are impacted by an article is whether they've read it or not. Right. And most people don't read the books they buy. Most right. people don't read the articles they start. So it's a very interesting metric. I encourage people to read it. Thank you, Ed Williams, for spending the time. Founder of Blogger, Twitter, Medium. You've changed my life. So thanks a lot for uh, doing this podcast with me. You bet. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.